I'm Damian Bulwa. Today on Fifth and Mission, lost stories from the 1906 earthquake. The Chronicle's basement, one floor below where we sit and record this podcast, has been growing since we moved into our Fifth and Mission building in the 1920s. Now there are millions of photos and articles covering the Chronicle's 154-year history. Critic Peter Hartlob is going to take us inside that archive. He'll talk with Chronicle librarian Bill Van Niekerken about some of their favorite little-known stories regarding the 06 quake and fires. That includes Hartlob's latest Chronicle story about a group of Russian Hill residents who saved their homes even when so many others were lost and even after the city's water lines were broken. We'll be right back. Here's our tour through the Chronicle Archive with Peter Hartlob and Bill Van Niekerken. Hi, I'm Bill Van Niekerken. I'm the librarian here at the San Francisco Chronicle, and we're down here in the basement of the, of the Chronicle building where we house the archives. Well, welcome to the Chronicle Archive. Um, we've got the, the microfilm going back to 1865. We have clippings that cover basically from the 1906 earthquake until 1985. We have about um, four million negatives, and in another room on, the, on another part of the basement here, we have about a million photos. So I'm down here five to ten times a day looking for, for, for either photos or photos from negatives, or sometimes I'll be down here for the, for the clippings when I'm doing research on someone who has a long history. The thing that surprised me the first time I came down here is how much different stuff there is. I mean, there's bound volumes that we're standing next to from 1907. Then there's CD-ROMs. Then there's uh, typewriters from all, probably every decade of the 20th century. I remember in high school and college, way back, I used to use a microfish machine. And then you gave me the key to come down here, and I saw a microfish machine down here, Bill. Well, we have a combination microfiche, microfilm machine, and the microfiche, um, they're even more valuable than the microfilm. Back, back in the days, even before the, the earthquake, the librarians would take copies of the paper, uh, write head, uh, sub, subject lines on top of the stories, fold them up, and put them in envelopes. And in, eight, in uh, 1985, when we converted to digital, we had all those things scanned or converted to microfiche, because uh, they took up so much space. Okay, I'm going to try and stump you, Bill. I want to look up something on our microfiche involving the band Journey. Oh, that's an easy one, because that's filed under music groups, and that would be down here. Um, let's see, and if it's a big enough band, they've got their own microfiche. Otherwise, there's group headings. Let's see if I can find it. There's Jeff Latall and there's Journey. They have their own microfiche. So then we would take this over to the microfilm fiche machine, slide this in here, put down the glass. Our very first Journey article is by Joel Selvin. Journey's Smashing Blast Off by Joel Selvin. The machine takes a little while to warm up and then you just hit this start button. Press the button and it prints a copy of the article. Back in the old days when we were doing clipping, we had a lot of typewriters around because we would type the subject headings on the envelopes that we would file the clips on. Um, and you can see this this typewriter looks like it's older than my dad. There, there are, Bill, like, I would say 
10 or 12 typewriters down here, and it's like there's one from each decade. It's like nobody wants to throw them away. You know, they've, they have memories, be they fond or, or tortured. You know, we all have memories of, of typewriters. Yeah, I've got an archive story in the Chronicle, um, These Houses Will Not Burn, and I want to talk about that, but I really wanted to use this episode to share our archive and everything that's cool about it with our readers. Well, we, we use it a lot, and it's really um, uh, appreciated by the newsroom and the news, newspaper management, and um, yeah, I feel fortunate to be able to work in it. Yeah. Do you remember your first day in the Chronicle Archive? When was that, and what was that day like? Oh, gosh. I started here in March of 1985, and they were just going to digital. And um, and the archive was right next to the newsroom because the, the reporters would either call or walk over and ask for the clip files, which was literally an envelope full of clipped articles on a topic. And um, the, the photo... Uh, the photos and the clips were in, in in file cabinet drawers, and they had a double deck set up in in the newsroom where where there was a there was a lower aisle of file cabinets, and then you would go upstairs to a second aisle. And it was just it was it was a little mind boggling and primitive. I I'd come from the Mercury News where things were a little less old school. Do you still find surprises in the Chronicle archive? All the time. It's. I feel really lucky. I, I feel like I learned something new every day. Like uh, just working on this earthquake project, I had no idea the extent of the damage. Um, just, just some of the stories were hor- horrific, and some of the stories are just awe-inspiring. My biggest takeaway down here is I'll be looking for A and then run into B, and while I'm looking through B, then I find an amazing thing with C. I mean, it's like the, the biggest finds that I find down here are usually not the thing I'm initially looking for, or, or, or there are things that I'm looking for them, and I don't find them initially, and I find them two years later. I've had that happen, too, uh, where I'm looking for one thing, and like uh, my, the, the Amelia Earhart negatives. Uh, I was down here looking for photos of Bob Dylan, playing with the Grateful Dead. And I'm down there in the negative files looking under Bob Dylan, and I look just past them. My eyes just accidentally happen to glance like an inch or two past there, and I find I see Amelia Earhart negatives from 1936. And on, on the envelope it says, her last fatal flight. <laughs> I had a time when I was looking for, this isn't as big as Amelia Earhart, but it's very big still. I had heard that William Shatner once rode on a killer whale at Marine World. So I Googled it and couldn't find anything at the time. I come down here, not sure if it even happened. I look under Shatner, nothing. I look under Wales, nothing. I look under Star Trek, nothing. I give up. Like a year later, year and a half later, I'm looking under dolphins for something totally different. And some anal librarian had filed William Shatner writing the killer whale under dolphins because an orca, a killer whale, is technically in the dolphin family. Gosh. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a great story, but you have the all-time best story in terms of finding something amazing down here by accident. Um, Which one are you thinking of? I'm thinking of The Last Waltz, Bill. Oh, The Last Waltz. Well, that was was so lucky. Um, I was looking for photos of... um, 
of Bread and Roses show with with Joni Mitchell and BB um, King playing together, and I start scanning in the negatives, and it's obviously in, and the photos that I first scan are obviously indoors, and of course all the Bread and Roses shows at the Greek Theater were outdoors, so I kept scanning, and pretty soon I'm seeing chandeliers, and then I keep going, and I see people dancing the waltz, and I realize this is Winterland. And I keep scanning, and there are photos of the band. There are photos of Joni Mitchell playing with the band. Someone must have had these negatives out on on a table, and when they put everything away, they put them in the in the wrong envelope. So this is the last waltz concert at Winterland. Scorsese made a documentary about it, arguably the most famous rock concert in San Francisco history. You ran into it by accident. Totally by accident. I wasn't looking for it. I had long ago assumed the photos were long gone, and I. I still have never found photos of it, but but the negatives, that's even better than the photos. So many surprises down here. And uh, today we're going to talk about surprises just from the 1906 earthquake. We've been for an event at the Chronicle um, gathering stories that maybe people haven't heard about before about the 1906 earthquake. And uh, we've been digging around. I thought we'd share a few today, finishing with the story that I've been working on um, about some houses up in Russian Hill. So you want to you want to go first, Bill? Sure. Um, one of the first things I found, um, I kind of che- you know I looked at the 1906. Well, uh, I tried to get the binder because we have bound volumes of all the papers off site, um, and so I ordered the April 1906 bound volume, and it's gone. Unfortunately, it's no longer around. I'm still trying to figure out what happened to it. So I started digging around a little bit. And another good place to look is anniversary stories. And so I happened to go, I looked 1916, 1926, and then 1936, they had a first-person interview with a guy named Ed Hurlbut. And uh, it was on the uh, it was on the front page. And um, Ed Hurlbut, not a household name in, never in heard San of Francisco him. history. Never heard of him ever. But... Um, um, he had this front front page story, and he had a byline, and um, he had he he had covered a a big fire the night before at the at the California Canning Company, and had gotten home around 4 a.m. Of course, about 5:13, he was woken up by the earthquake, and so he got up. He was a little groggy, and 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 his mom walked in and said, "Don't get excited. It's just an earthquake," <laughs> which is perhaps the one of the biggest understatements of all time. <laughs> yes. So, so, so they both got dressed, and as everyone did after the earthquake, they went down the streets with with all their neighbors, and and they're down in the streets, kind of kind of looking around. I think there was an aftershock or two, and Pete the milkman came by. He he had a one horse wagon, and he was, uh, you know, he had milk in his cart, and um, he, he he Pete knew that Ed worked for the Chronicle, so he yelled out the. The Valencia Hotel has collapsed, and firemen are trying to get people out of there. I thought you might want to know. So, 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 so Ed Hurlbut got you know, you know, sit by his mom, ran out, to, you know, so started running out to. I guess he lived near, near the uh, Mission District, and so he went out to where the hotel was, and he could see smoke rising from different parts of the city. So he knew that this was going to be a big story, and it was going to be a story where he'd have to cover some cover some miles so he went down to he saw a bike store open and so he went in there and he didn't have any money so he said give me a bike the chronicle will pay for it i promise yeah he 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 talked the guy into it rode away he covered the fire lines 
in different places. Then, then he went to where the Chronicle building was. And, of course, the Chronicle building was on fire. And, uh, uh, but, but he found one of the editors, um, and they, they moved across the street from the building, and, and, the, and the editors sat on a garbage can, and that was the city desk for, for at least a couple hours. Wow. Then he then he went he went back out covered uh, some more he was basically out for like forty eight hours covering the story and um, somebody com- commandeered his bike um, uh-huh. to, someone from the business department and so uh, he so he never knew if the bike store ever got any money or if they ever got the bike back oh no but 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 he was he was happy to say uh, that when that when he saw uh, the story. You know, in in the paper there in 1936, he's quoted as saying, "It took 30 years, but I finally got a byline on an earthquake story." Oh wow! Well, I, I got to say, first of all, Ed Hurlbut's like the Lizzie Johnson of his time. I mean, I could just see her running around commandeering a bike. Oh yeah, yeah. And oh, yeah. and I would tell you right now that if 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 a reporter here were to commandeer a bike in the name of journalism, Audrey Cooper would sign that expense report. She would. But she then would. New York might might send a bill. <laughs> might send. <laughs> well, that's a great one. Um, I wanted to start with uh, Raphael Wheel, who is again not a household name. You hear about the earthquake. You hear about San Francisco history. A lot of people have talked about A. P. Giannini, mm-hmm. and rightfully so. He he was a banker and had done banking for a lot of poor people before the earthquake. And when the earthquake happened, he brought his records out uh, in a fruit cart, I think. And then (laughs) while the city burned and then brought him back and then brought banking back and became the pioneer for Bank of America. Um, A lot of people have heard about the Hellmans, um, who, you know, did a lot during the earthquake and became very important philanthropists. Well, Raphael Wheel was a 70-year-old man who... um, had the White House department store. And I would say that was like, maybe like the J.C. Penney of its time. It wasn't the highest end one. It wasn't the lowest end one. A lot of working class people, a lot of employees in the city. So earthquake hits. The Chronicle um, is coming back first with their combined edition that I think was, uh, didn't they They print it in Oakland? They printed it at the Oakland uh, Oakland Tribune. And then the Chronicle would end up working out of the Oakland Herald for for a couple weeks. Yeah, and 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 then in the days that followed, um, the papers start just telling every story at once. I mean, they're just packed with stories. And this is a one paragraph story. Raphael Wheel will rebuild, and it's my favorite one paragraph story of all time. I'm going to read it. It's in its entirety. This ran in the Chronicle, April twenty fourth, nineteen oh six. Starts with a quote from Raphael Wheel. Almost the whole thing is a quote from him. The White House will be rebuilt and it will be better than ever, said Raphael Wheel yesterday. Quote, I have enough left to buy an annuity and live like a fighting cock for the rest of my days. (laughs) But none of that for me. I'm going into the work of rebuilding with all my soul. I am 70 years old, but I love San Francisco with a love that is filial. And I'm going to work at the restoration of the city as if I were only 30. That's Raphael Wheel. Well, he 
he did that. He uh, became one of the city's greatest philanthropists. He immediately set up a clothing and blanket drive for the city. He was 70 years old when the earthquake hit. He lived another 20 plus years, went and helped with the war effort during World War One. He actually died in Paris uh, in, in the 1920s. And um, ended up, I mean, we, we searched around the archive, and you found a photo of Raphael Wheel. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, just by accident, looking in the, in the earthquake files for something else, I knew you had mentioned the name. And so there it was. Yeah, and it was a photo, and it was he was being honored um, there, for all of, all of this, the clothing that he had given and the things that he had done. And the Chronicle obituary, I, I read that too, and just talks about all of his great works and how much of it— after that one quote, how much of it was anonymous. I mean, he was this great San Franciscan, and there's a school still named after him. And I wonder if the kids at that school and the teachers and even the principal even know everything he did. But when this is over, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to package this information and send it to him because he was a great San Franciscan. I think they'd love to know. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have uh, my story. This is my final story, and it's my favorite story that I've ever found about the earthquake. I've got a piece about it this week, uh, These Houses Will Not Burn. And I, I found out about it because I, I read what was at the time kind of a short little mention of um, an octagonal house, which is kind of a rarity in, in architecture, and a few other houses around it that survived the earthquake. If you look at an earthquake map um, and you look at what burned and what didn't, pretty much everything east of Van Ness that's residential was gone. And then there are a couple little, like almost like a donut hole, um, where it's not all red on the earthquake map that something survived there. And this is one of those areas where something survived. Um, so I started looking on Google Maps and looked, and sure enough, you know, there's all these giant buildings around, and then there's like these three houses left that look like the up house, like from Pixar, you know, the, yeah. the, with all the buildings around it. There are these three really old school houses, this octagonal house and two others. So I started looking more and doing more research and then found out these houses on Green Street between Jones and Leavenworth had this cinematic happening, Bill. I mean, it was the most amazing, brave type of thing that you would write for Hollywood with these houses. Now, let me set the scene for you. Um, the chimney collapsed on the fire chief, and the, you know nobody in the fire department knows what to do, and they don't have enough uh, forces to tackle all the problems going on. So if you're a resident and your house is on fire, the fire department's not coming. The police aren't coming. The military's probably not there yet. There's no water pressure, and you're surrounded by fire. And these residents of these five houses decided that they were going to fight it, that they were going to fight for their, um, their, their houses and try and save them with, in 1906 terms even, no resources. But they had dynamite, Bill. <laughs> so they, <laughs> yes, so, they did. So they start dynamiting all the structures around their houses, like the outbuildings and where they kept their horses. And, and all of those, they start blowing them up. And then realize that they have a little bit of water in their boilers and in their tubs. So they take what little water they have and start wetting down blankets with that. They're working with shovels to get rid of brush and stuff, and there's an inferno coming at them. I mean, it, it, unimaginable what it was like to be there. And spent basically 24 hours fighting every time an ember hits a house and a fire starts. They're using these few wet blankets they have 
to uh, to to fight that off. This small group of people. Um, at one point, they put too much dynamite in a structure, so the the octagonal house survives, and they put too much dynamite in this one structure they need to blow up, like five times, ten times as much dynamite, and it blows up so heavily that every window in the octagonal house breaks apart. Great. Yeah. <laughs> but it survives. The structure of the building survives. Yeah. It's what I love about being in the archive here is, and I think you feel this way too, I don't ever look at any of this in the archive as, you know, this is the past, this is something that happened a long time ago and doesn't matter now. I see it all as kind of a through line. There's yesterday and today, and it all ties together. It's, yeah. What what happened then impacts us now. Yeah, and it, they're lessons for now. Raphael Wheel, the bravery these people showed, you can tell these stories now, and it 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 inspires us now to 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 act in in a certain way it's it's something that you can think of for today's times and also i love the fact that these three houses are there i rode up um on my bike the other day and uh just to leave some notes hoping that people might want to talk to me and ring their doorbells i didn't get a hold of anybody yet but um just being up there and seeing them, I mean, there was just something about it that was moving. And it's, it's, it's something that I feel a lot down here in the archive, Bill. It's, it's, it's great when things survive over time. I mean, it's just, I mean, the city has changed a lot o- over the years. And it's, um, it, it, it's always a pleasant f- surprise when, when, when you see something that's, that's 100 years old and it's, it, and it's still going strong. Yeah, like the Chronicle, Bill. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so, um, and, and that's another thing that I like about being here is, you know, the Chronicle's over 100 years old and has been here for that history. Well, and, and we're closing in on 100 years in this building. Yeah. So, I mean, I that's one of the things that makes me proud to work here is that, you know, we're down here, we're looking at this history, but we're a continuing part of the history, too, as people who are working at the Chronicle. And I appreciate that. I know our readers appreciate it. And uh, I just hope you're, we're here a long time. I think we will be. I mean, I think I, I think we fill an important niche. Yeah. Thanks so much to Peter Hartlob and Bill Van Niekerken for joining us. And thank you for listening. Fifth and Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe. <laughs>